Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 285th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is brought to you by the second season of the award-winning comedy series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, starring Rachel Brosnahan and Alex Borstein on Amazon Prime Video. For your consideration in all categories, including outstanding comedy series and outstanding lead actress in a comedy series. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a legend of stand-up and late-night comedy. A man who, between Late Night with David Letterman, which ran on NBC from 1982 through 1993, and Late Show with David Letterman, which ran on CBS from 1993 through 2015, hosted 6,080 episodes of Late Night Television over 33 years, making him the longest-serving host in American TV history. And who, in the process, changed the format by refusing to take it or himself seriously. New York Magazine called him, quote, late night's greatest ironist and most ornery host, close quote. And Time Magazine called him, quote, the dominant late night figure of his era, close quote. Now the host of Netflix's excellent long form interview program, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, the second season of which dropped on the service on May 31st, David Letterman. Over the course of our conversation at the Bedford Post Inn in Bedford, New York, about an hour outside of Manhattan, the 72-year-old, who rarely grants interviews, opened up about why a kid from the Midwest who was both shy and lacking in confidence wound up moving to Los Angeles to pursue a career performing in front of strangers, how a contemporary who also did stand-up, Jay Leno, morphed from one of his colleagues and friends into one of his competitors and nemeses as they both hoped to graduate from the comedy store to Johnny Carson's position as the host of NBC's The Tonight Show, why hosting the show that followed Carson's during the decade-plus in which he thought he was being groomed to replace his hero forced Letterman to create a late-night show different from Carson's or anyone else's, what the highs and lows were of the 22 years he spent at CBS competing against Leno after not getting The Tonight Show, why he decided to retire from The Late Show when he did and then return two years later with My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, what he thinks of today's crop of late-night hosts, how he feels about Donald Trump, and what makes him laugh the hardest these days, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Well, Dave, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real honor to have you on the podcast, and we always just begin with a few basics. Sure. Where were you born and raised? Indianapolis, Indiana. What did your folks do for a living? Uh, my mother raised kids. 
I was born in 47, my sister before me, and then one sister after me. So that was her life as it was for uh, women of that uh, era. Mm -hmm. My father owned his own flower shop, and that was it. I read one of the things preparing for this said sort of that when you were maybe 10, 11, that business fell upon a bit of a hard time and that changed the atmosphere at home. Yeah. How did that affect you? Well, as I remember, coming home from school one day, we were lucky enough to just be a block and a half from where I went to grade school. So I got to walk home for lunch, which was great because my mom was a tremendous cook and it was great fun to come home. And I can remember seeing my uncle's car parked out front of the house and I thought, this can't be good because my uncle had a full-time job right. nowhere near the house and it was a Tuesday. Why would he be here? And I found out that the previous night, my father had a heart attack Ugh. and scared the holy heck out of me as a kid. And they went to the hospital and they were able to determine that this was like the third or fourth heart attack he had had. And he was in the hospital. And it was at that point that the guy he was in business with decided he wanted out of the business. So my parents had to struggle with making sure my father was healthy and would stay alive and then also trying to figure out a way to pay off the guy who had chosen that moment to want out. I think it was just poor timing. Yeah. But that was a big deal. And two things about that that really are quite vivid for me. And yeah. it, by the way, is this more information no, than you were hoping for? great. I'm, I think it's important. <laughs> my father, this was in sometime in the 50s, and they said that my father was a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker. And the concern was that, uh, well, should he quit smoking? And his doctor, I don't even know if it was a cardiologist, they let him smoke in those days. You could smoke in the hospital room. <laughs> oh my God. And the doctor said, no, he should continue smoking because the shock of withdrawal may affect his heart. So he just Kept smoked, going. smoked right on through <laughs> the heart That's attack, right on through the recovery, and smoked again till late in life when he had a heart attack that he couldn't recover from. Yes. That, I remember, even as a kid, yeah. I thought, well, really? Smoking <laughs> in the hospital? Probably not a great thing. The other thing is I came home one day, and this was the first indication I had that money was going to be a bit of a problem. My mom was sitting at the kitchen table with her head in her hands, and she was crying. And I thought, oh, my God, this must mean Dad is dead. Right. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, look in the refrigerator. And that I couldn't imagine what the connection between <laughs> something in the refrigerator and, and your my dad. father dying might be. So I opened it up and uh, I said, what am I looking at exactly? And she said, the woman there looking after the kids had uh, bought too much milk from the milkman. So the refrigerator was full of milk. And the issue was, we don't have enough money to be spending on this quantity of milk. Right, right. Uh, and I think it was not that singular issue. It was just another emotional, you know, tap yes. to the gut that sent her over the edge. But then he recovered and, you know, worked and provided a living for us comfortably until he died early. He died yeah. when he was 57. Jeez. Well, I guess, How about that for a, no, a, it's a very, high how are I, you? Yeah, I think it clearly was a backdrop for a lot of your early years. And I wonder, you know, other things I've read about that time, maybe not a great student, no particular passion or hobby until a high school speech class. Right. What yeah. happened there? What was the turning point? Well, I was an okay student in grade school, 
and then Indiana law said you had to stay in school till you were 16, so I had to keep going. And I got to high school, and there were two programs, the academic program and the general studies. And after my freshman year, I proved that I was a candidate for general studies. (laughs) And that meant that you studied merchandising, which meant you uh, knew about lost leaders and how to stack cans in an attractive way so people would buy them. (laughs) And I also, as an elective, took a speech course. And it was the only thing in my life I had done up to that point academically or under the guise or heading of schooling that came easy to me. The first day in class, the teacher said, now we want everybody to get up and give a two-minute improvised speech introducing themselves. Mm -hmm. So not knowing what that was, never having done it before, got up and did it. And when I sat down, I thought, whoa, that was just talking about myself. That was easy. (laughs) And I began to lament. I thought, I hope there's a way you could make a living doing that. Right. right. Because a sophomore in high school in Indianapolis, Indiana, it didn't seem obvious. Right. Well, the thing that somewhat, at least to me, runs up against is that there are other things that have always suggested you were shy, maybe Mm self-conscious about your appearance or whatever. Yeah. So how does a guy who feels that way wind up choosing things, whether it's stand-up or TV, that are going to put you in front of people every day to be essentially picked apart by others? This is a pivotal question (laughs) because what I thought I could get away with after that speech class was a career in radio right? where all I would have to do would be to talk into a microphone. Right. And then beyond radio, I thought all I have to do is be on television. And in fact, when I got on radio and TV, often they would say, you know, Kroger's is having a sale on uh, mule meat and they want everybody to come out and buy the mule meat. So They bought time on our air, so we said, we'll send a guy out to help you sell (laughs) holiday mule meat. And that's when I realized I can't do this in front of people. And I had to go to the general manager and say, please don't make me do that Mm -hmm. anymore. I was always more comfortable like we are now sitting in front of a microphone. So this all changed when I went to California and realized I had to suck it up and get on stage in front of humans if I really was going to find a way to make a living at this. Well, before that... Have you ever had mule meat? (laughs) Can't say that I have. It's delightful. (laughs) It comes in cans, like ham. Well, so between that speech class and winding up in California were these years at Ball State University, and you're there during the thick of Vietnam. You, I was uh, amazed to learn, you got married when you were just 21, still a student there for the first time. And that was where these first showbiz jobs started that continued or sort of evolved after graduation. So how does a guy at that young of an age start to make inroads? When I was, I think, a sophomore, between my sophomore and junior summer, or my junior and senior year at Ball State, I don't know, it was very early, a good friend of mine had a brother who worked at the ABC affiliate television station in Indianapolis, and they were looking for a summer announcer. So as a great friend to his brother, Dick Norris, said, sure, come on in and uh, we'll let you audition. And I did go in to get the audition, and I think because of Dick Norris, his brother Jerry, being a good friend of mine, I think they just gave it to me. Yeah. And so I really began working in television when I was still in college and 
was 20-some years old. So that was just good fortune. And I continued to work there after I graduated from college. And as far as the Vietnam of it all, in those days, if you stayed in college, you had a student deferment. Yes, yes. And once you got out of college, your deferment was gone and you were classified 1A, which I was right after I graduated from college. They said, okay, come on down, time for your physical. I took a physical, and it's one of the few times in your life when you think, whoa, what if they discover something and I don't have to go to Vietnam? Because in those days, Vietnam was not a place people were excited about going. My friends went, a couple of my fraternity brothers got killed there, and turns out I was perfectly healthy and ready to go. So about that same time, Nixon and Johnson had been up to their nose in Vietnam, and they decided that rather than continue the draft, we would go to a lottery system as part of our supposed strategy to pull out and save face. Uh, Too late for that, of course. And so they selected birthdays, and mine came up out of 356 birthdays. Mine was 352, and they only took the first 100 birthdays. So in that regard with all due respect to people, men and women, who went and whose lives were changed forever. Yeah. Even the men and women who came home physically healthy, lives changed forever. I did not have to go. And in those years after finishing at Ball State, it's that TV job and I guess a radio job, you know, sort of grew in terms of your responsibilities. I know that you were, the TV thing in particular, it's interesting because it wasn't with a comedic bent inherently, but you found a way to bring comedy into whether it's weather or kid shows or whatever. Right. right. Well, I tried because I always thought that everything is better if it's funny. Yes. And it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. (laughs) And I still make that mistake today, but that's what I tried to do because I thought all I need to do here, I'm in Indianapolis. And if I get noticed, then, oh, look out. Just show business, look out, wait till you see... (laughs) And it didn't work that way. So I realized, well, I'm I'm in a medium market and I got a chance to go to Minneapolis and work doing exactly the same thing for exactly the same money. And I thought two things, weather in Minneapolis is more important than weather in Indianapolis <laughs> because they get 100 feet of snow there. Right. And it's cold there, and on the way to the airport, I saw them erecting snow fences, and this was in September. Right. So I thought, well, I'll just stay where I am. (laughs) And then I got fed up with where I was because I was an announcer in a booth most of the time, and it's hard to be funny doing station identifications, (laughs) although it was a great experience. And I got to be the weekend weatherman and all of that nonsense. So then a guy offered me a radio job, which I took, and it was 1974. It was right after Watergate and when Gerald Ford was the president and pardoned Nixon. And so people on the radio wanted to talk about Watergate, and I didn't want to talk about Watergate. So I did it for a year. Right. And then my wife and I moved to uh, Los Angeles. Well, that's what I want to ask you about next, because what went into that decision? What did you imagine awaited you out there? I don't know. I was petrified with anxiety. And in those days, I drank and drank heavily. When I made the decision, I could only live with the decision when I was drunk. And during the day when I was sober, I was scared silly because I told the kid at the radio station, I'm only going to be here a year. I kind of called my own bluff because at the end of this year, I'm going to California. 
and then I would go home and start drinking. And the drunker I got, the more comfortable I was with the decision. And then the next day, I'd wake up in a ball thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm leaving my hometown. I don't know anything. I don't know anybody. And then I'd start drinking again, and it all seemed pretty good. And in the meantime, I was writing. I told people I was going to be a writer, so I was writing uh, scripts for TV shows like the Bob Newhart Show and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. and Just Mash. unsolicited. Unsolicited, yeah. yeah. And I would think, boy, this is so much funnier than anything you see on TV. <laughs> so I would mail them out there, and they would just come back and said, you know, we can't accept unsolicited <laughs> material. So I thought I had to get an agent. So then I got an agent by just going through some agent book. Right. And I sent all my stuff to the agent, and he said, yeah, I'll represent you, sight unseen. And I went out there. That was enough to get you to well, go out. Well, it was something. Yeah. I mean, as, as it turned out, it was nothing, nothing against the guy. Right. But I didn't know what I was doing, right. for God's sake. <laughs> what I'm curious to know is what exposure, if any, you had had to stand-up comedy before you got out there, because it seems that literally within a week of arriving, you're performing stand-up for the first time, which That's is hard right. to hard to yeah, wrap one's head around. Well, my family, as did every family in those days, we watched the Ed Sullivan show when I was a kid, and there would be comedians on that show. And, you know, that's where I discovered the form, the art of stand-up. Every Sunday night, Ed Sullivan would have one or two comedians sometimes. Then after that, it was Jack Parr's Tonight Show, and after that, it was Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And you got to see these guys, and it became apparent that many of these men and women had worked at a place called the Comedy Store, which had, I think, just opened in 74 and I went out in 75. So I knew that if you could get on stage at the comedy store, and if you were any good, you might then get to the Tonight Show. And that was it. That was that was the end of the plan. But I told everybody I was going to be a writer because nobody thought, you know, you're not going to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Nobody's a stand-up comedian right. unless you're really funny and on Ed Sullivan. So that's exactly what I did. And the comedy store had a Monday night open mic night. Probably the first, well, I won't say that, but the first open mic night that I had known of mm -hmm. was the Comedy Store. I'm sure uh, real nightclubs at the time would let anybody on stage who wanted to get up on stage. But the Comedy Store had it organized that Monday night, sure, we were looking for beginners, and that's how that began. And again, though, a guy who is not the most... At that time, I don't can't speak about now, but it sounds like not the most outgoing, not the right. most confident. You're going to go up in front of a room of strangers. That's right. Many of them probably drunk and looking to heckle somebody. Uh -huh. And you are going to subject yourself to this. That's right. But it's I, like masochistic. Yes. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it, once you start pulling the pin on the first hand grenade, you then have to pull the pin on the next hand right. grenade and keep pulling <laughs> pins. And once we had moved out there, sold all our stuff and drove cross country. I had to go through it, and yeah. I had to suck it up and say, all right, I'm going to try this. And it went okay. And it's interesting now, these many, many, many years later, when I had a nightly television show, it got to the point where the part of the show that I enjoyed the most was talking to the audience before the show. And that is just exactly the opposite 
of what my feeling was about talking to a room full of strangers 35 years earlier. So it went well enough that you were invited back, I read at some point, as an MC, and then more as yourself, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mitzi Shore was uh, kind to me. She let me MC, which was great. And then I got to do try out jokes and stuff and introduce people. And that was great because that was a pretty safe way for a beginner to get in there. into it. Yeah, yeah, it was good. And some of the other people who were there, I guess at the same time, correct me if any of this is wrong, but Robin Williams, George Miller, Tom Dreesen, Jeff Altman. I read occasionally Richard Pryor and Freddie Prince. And then one Jay Leno who just, I want to read back some interviews that you did very early in your career because I thought it was really fascinating to me to come across this. I didn't realize there was this level of familiarity and respect, but you said, quote, he and I got to L.A. at about the same time, although he'd been doing stand-up a few years before that, and when I saw him, I thought, oh yeah, this is the way it ought to be done, close quote. Then there was another, among the newer people, I like Jay Leno's observational comedy. I think he's very bright, close quote. And then there's, quote, there's a guy, Jay Leno, who I think is probably the best new, not so new, but best at really observational material, close quote. And he... There are similar admiring things that I came across where he was saying that you were a natural and on and on. So what was the scene like for you two and also just being there with that crowd at that time? Well, it was great. And everything I said about Jay then certainly was true and I think continues to be true. When we were there, maybe there were people as good as Jay, but there was nobody better than Jay. And he was one of those guys that would just focus not only the room, but also the comics who were waiting to go on. Because it seemed like he had figured out his personality on stage, figured out his attitude on stage, figured out an infinite variety of topics that he could make funny. He didn't necessarily rely on jokes. It was a a lot of attitude, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of sarcasm. And it just seemed effortless. And I think that for Jay, Robert Klein had been an influence because as I got to then see more of Robert Klein later, he seemed like this may be the only guy that sort of reminds me of what Jay was doing. Mm -hmm. But the experience of being there was fantastic because each night you would gather and there would be that group of people that you mentioned. And what a way to spend your evening with people who were really funny, and often people off stage that perhaps aren't on that list yeah. were funnier than when they were on stage. <laughs> so it was from the time you showed up till the time the place closed in the evening, it was a pretty grand party. Yeah. In terms of starting to make money through comedy, the first early jobs, they're so eclectic. I wonder if you can just share how I guess connecting the dots, maybe being at the comedy store leads to representation, leads to a Mary Tyler Moore variety show or to Jimmy Walker from Good Times Dynamite or even Bob Newhart. Just how did things spring from the comedy store that would then, you know, those are the next steps that Mm -hmm. then lead to something like The Tonight Show? Well, I kept working on the stand-up. And in those days, the idea was get five minutes to audition for whoever the talent rep was from The Tonight Show, The Merv Griffin Show, The Dinah Shore Show, the guy that came out, Mike uh, Douglas Show, Mm -hmm. anything. Just get five minutes. That's all anybody cared about because this predated HBO and everything that came after. Mm -hmm. So all you wanted was the five minutes. And then from that, it was the Freddie Prinze model 
maybe you'll get your own sitcom. Mm-hmm. And, and that was step one, two, and three. And during the day, I had made friends with people who would get writing jobs on TV shows, and they would say, oh, what about our friend from Indiana? And they were very nice. I got to work with them here and there. So it was like that. During the day, you would get jobs writing, and at night, you would work at the comedy store. And I got to be friends with Jimmy Walker through, I think, Jay and Elaine Boozler. And he had a bunch of people writing for him, and he paid me to write jokes. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever used any of my material, but he was a great guy and nice enough to, you know, give me, I think it was 100 bucks a week to write jokes. And I thought, this is it. I'm in heaven. Uh, somebody's actually right. paying me to write jokes. And then he formed a management company known as Ebony Genius. That's Ebony Genius. <laughs> and I was a client. Jay was a client. <laughs> Elaine Boosler was a client. And uh, Wayne Klein. Mm-hmm. That was my first official show business representation. I want to mention the name again, Ebony (laughs) Genius. Well, that's the first adjectives that come to mind when I think of you. So Thank you uh, very much. Yes. So I think that the thing that maybe is hard for people, you know, younger than, let's say, 40, even 30, maybe, to understand is in an age of 500 TV channels and many other forms of entertainment on screens. Why was it that it was so meaningful to aspiring comics to get a chance to perform, let alone get invited to sit next to Johnny Carson on Tonight Show, as you did for the first time uh, starting in November 78? Why was it such a big deal? Well, I mean, you described why it was such a big deal. The hallway was pretty narrow. And my friend Tom Dreesen is fond of saying when in those back in those days, you would travel the country and somebody would say, oh, hi, you're who and I'm who. And oh, yeah, nice to see you. What do you do? And you would say, well, I'm a stand up comedian. And then the first thing they would say, have you ever been on The Tonight Show? Because that was validation. And if you hadn't been on The Tonight Show, as far as the world was concerned, you weren't really a stand up comedian. So I can remember the first night going on. And the stagehand, I think his name was Gene, I think he was later on the Gong Show because he worked there at NBC and he was became a character on, on that show. But I think he was a legitimate stagehand. He would hold the curtain open for you when Johnny introduced you and mm-hmm. the band would be playing. And you knew one thing for certain. When you went through that curtain, your life was going to either get better or get worse. <laughs> In five minutes one or the other would happen. Right, right. And luckily for me, it got better. Was it the very first time that you were then invited to go sit next to him? Yes. I was on the Mary Tyler Moore variety show, and because of that credit, they said, oh, sure, he can come over and sit down. So that was predetermined with my first visit. So again, it was just good fortune, just well, I love dumb one, luck. <laughs> I read one thing that you which was great because I'm sure other people felt this way when they sat with you years later. But, quote, I can remember sitting next to Johnny Carson for the first time, and I'm thinking, holy God, this is like looking at Abraham Lincoln. Right. <laughs> Close quote. Right. It was because you've seen him. You've seen Abraham Lincoln every time you open your wallet, if you're lucky enough to have a $5 <laughs> bill. And you see Abraham Lincoln, but you don't ever expect to see him sitting next to you right. on a bus. Right. <laughs> The same with Carson. You would see him night after night after night after night after night. And then, holy gosh, here he is. Right. 
And he took a liking to you, though. And I, he was very nice to me. Do you think it was because he saw in you a fellow Midwestern kid with similar sensibilities, or was there something else? Did he ever tell you why he was so fond of you? He was nice to young comedians. I don't know that he was nicer to me than to others, but I had noticed over the years that people making their first appearance on his show, he took a paternal view toward them and encouraged them and was very courteous and warm to them. And that certainly was the case for me. He was very nice to me. And we did some socializing. We would go to dinner here and there. And before he died, my wife and I had dinner with him and his wife. They had their yacht out on the Hudson and we went up and down the Hudson River one night and up the East River and then up under the George Washington Bridge on the Hudson having dinner. And it was a stunning visual experience. Mm-hmm. And then to be having dinner with Johnny at that part of his life was also amazing. How long after you first appeared on The Tonight Show were you invited to guest host it? I'm not sure exactly. Um, but was that just that was that a mind blowing? That's like the yeah, next level. That was crazy. And in those days, the Academy Awards used to be on Monday night. Yes. And I think your first guest hosting job would be on The Tonight Show opposite the Academy Awards <laughs> on that Monday night. So it was you almost didn't need to get out of your car to do it. Well, because <laughs> nobody was going to be watching. But I can remember doing it. And during the first commercial, somebody, I think it was might have been Peter LaSalle, came up to me. And he he puts his hand on my arm at the desk, and he says, you have got to relax. <laughs> and I just thought, that's the dumbest thing <laughs> anybody has ever said to me. Okay, yeah. let me just relax. It's the Tonight Show. I'm hosting. I'm behind the desk. You know what I think I'll do? Take a quick nap. <laughs> Well, by December 1981, Esquire did a profile of you. This is before you had a show of your own, and it begins, quote, When David Letterman enters a small club, other young comics make way for him, and although he moves (laughs) among them, he is separate. They haven't hosted The Tonight Show, and he has, close quote. So as a result of— By the way, that that demarcation existed for everyone. Really? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. uh, I mean, if you had—even if you had been on The Tonight Show, forget hosting or able to sit down as a guest, there was an aura about you. I can remember— Seeing Steve Landisberg, who was a very funny guy, who Johnny loved and had done The Tonight Show many, many times. And it was, oh, geez, there's <laughs> let Steve. And David Brenner. It was right. the same thing. It was not the individual. It was the essence of The yes. Tonight Show. Yes. It was a king-making machine. Well, for you, what it I, seems like the thing that it first resulted in was this 90-minute TV show in 1980 that I believe you and your girlfriend at the time, Meryl Marco, she was your head writer, and Mm -hmm. you guys came up with some unusual stuff for daytime television, including, I believe this one may have been her idea, Stupid Pet Tricks, which of course endured for many decades after. But So the show wins a daytime Emmy but it, it seems like it never Did you really... hear that, ladies and gentlemen? A daytime, daytime. Emmy. Come on now. But it, it seems like you guys just did not get off on the right foot and it could never recover. <laughs> Again, it was one of those things where I assumed the world, wait till we get on TV right. because the world has had to suffer with <laughs> mediocre entertainment. Right. Hang on. 
if he can just wait a little longer because here we come. And, of course, once again, I was wrong. Well, so it's four months that that lasted, but I'm wondering, and it sounds like for some of that, you knew that it was just a matter of time because the affiliates were pulling out. Oh, yeah. But, but it, I mean, that was, first of all, let me just say this yeah. about stupid metrics. <laughs> I think maybe, and, you know, it's arguable, but at the time, yep. perhaps the single best talk show idea uh, since Stump the Band. And I know Stump the Band predated yes. Johnny. It yep. went back to radio, I think. But Stupid Petrix was oh, was nothing but genius. Yes. But everything else, we had a producer who quit the, the... We were supposed to go on the air Monday, and he quit Friday because he realized better, you know, get off now and swim to shore than drown. So we were on our own. You almost went with Roger Ailes, right? I read... Was oh, that right? Rob well, I, I heard that he because he had done Mike Douglas, and oh, that's right. Yeah, Westinghouse because we knew some people who worked at Westinghouse. Yeah, if, if only you'd hired him, we wouldn't wow. have had Fox News. Maybe how <laughs> about that? Would have been a show. Yes, I'd, I'd stay home and watch. Yes, wow. Yeah. Well, but so when this thing was cratering, were you worried that you had blown yes. your shot? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because as you pointed out early. There were not that many opportunities. Now, this was an NBC show, and it was under the aegis, I think, of uh, Fred Silverman yep. and Brandon Tartikoff. Yes. And I knew Brandon Tartikoff and liked Brandon Tartikoff quite well, and I think he was the heir apparent to Fred Silverman. Anyway, so yeah, I thought, well, we're done here. You go to the back of the line, which right. it was true. You go to the back of the line. And it was about a year and a half, and it was it was awful. It was just, it was... Uh, well, can terrible. I read you one thing you said around that time? Sure. Quote, I went through one period when I smoked a surprising, a really breathtaking amount of grass almost every night. During the failed morning show, and it was only about a two-month period, I just got to the point where I'd be stoned and I'd wish I wasn't. So I quit, close quote. Correct. But that was because you felt that this whole ultimate ambition, which it sounds like from the beginning would have been to uh, yeah, do The Tonight Show, that's right? That's right. And, and now I had just torn it up and thrown it away and set fire to it. And when the show went on the air, I had stopped drinking. And then when the show went off the air, I went back to drinking. So, so I had that problem as well. Yes. And I can remember what the, I was thinking about, uh, I'm, I'm now at a point where I'm talking to my son about smoking weed. Yes. And I, I try to isolate for him my experiences with it and <laughs> one night I was smoking a joint and I was watching the Yankees and I became fixated with the fact that the pitcher was actually standing on a mound of dirt <laughs> and that that's all I could was... focus on I just I thought wow look at that that's just that's just dirt he's standing on <laughs> And then, then I got hungry, and I went to the refrigerator, and in the freezer were two pints of ice cream, a pint of Haagen-Dazs vanilla, a pint of Haagen-Dazs chocolate. And I stood there by the refrigerator and carved out the vanilla, <laughs> ate it all standing there, and I thought, wow, I'm still hungry. Right. So then I finished up the pint. Now, I, I you know, the old uh, pints a pound, the world around. So, so that night in short period, I ate two pounds of ice cream. <laughs> Now I go back to bed, yeah. and I wake up in the middle of the night under the impression that my heart has stopped. <laughs> so the next day, uh, because you have to be your own advocate when right. it comes to health care, let's face it, <laughs> I, I, I look up a cardiologist who said, yeah, come on over. And I said, I think my heart stopped last night. 
So he put me through a great deal of tests, yeah. and it, you know, it turned out my heart had not. Yeah, well, thank God. <laughs> and I, so I relate this story to my son now with a great deal of. Um, it's just it. All it is, it, it has less to do with marijuana than idiot behavior. <laughs> And that, that's what I try to stress to him. Wow. And I think that was pretty much the end of my uh, days with marijuana. That's funny. But well, it, it's like everything else. I just, it's the behavior of, of a dope. What, <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I think that the the cool, you know, the, the thing that seems to have given you a second life in terms of the career after that morning show, would it have been... Grant Tinker, because he had been yeah. a fan of yours going back to the Variety oh, Show. Oh, that's right. Grant Tinker. He had hired me on the on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That's right. And now he was at NBC. Now he's suddenly running NBC. Right. And he thought I had something to do with the Tomorrow Show. Well, yeah, Tom Snyder is, yeah. I guess, not doing well in the ratings. Right. And so they're now looking for a 1235. That's right. And I, I always felt bad about that because I loved Tom Snyder and I loved his show and Felt like nobody wants to be pushed off the air by a guy who's only had a failed show. <laughs> and the Tomorrow Show, when it first went on the air, I was so excited back in Indiana because finally there was something else to watch on TV. Right, right. Because after the Tonight Show, you, you'd get maybe a, a half hour of public service programming and then lights out. Really? So with the Tomorrow Show, you got this fascinating Tom Snyder who was doing Ed Murrow. He would... He would sit there and he was smoking on TV, and I thought, whoa, this is tuck in because this is going to be something. So I felt bad about taking the show, but, you know, not bad enough to right, turn it right, down, of right. course. Well, and so that was the beginning in on February 1st, 82, of Late Night with David Letterman at NBC. So you're after Carson now, and I just want to read one more thing back to you. This is a, a Playboy profile at the time of you, quote, for the first time, the generation that was raised by television has its own network talk show, Late Night with David Letterman. According to the Nielsen people, an astonishing 60% of Letterman's viewers were born after World War II, a demographic profile not even remotely approached by any previous talk show, close quote. And I wondered if you think that one of the reasons that this show resonated was because not only were those the people that were watching, but you were in a way giving them exactly the sort of thing that they were all about, which was not playing by the mm. traditional old rules. That, in a, in a way, seems to have been the case because of somebody named Dave Tebbett. Yeah. What, what was that? That's right. I mean, when you read the, those statistics, I, I, I would like to say, see, this is exactly what America wanted. But I, I can't even take credit for that because having dumped one show right. with the impression that I knew exactly what I was doing, I went into this one with great trepidation. And one of the reasons for it, a big reason for it, was Dave Tebbett, who was a lieutenant of Johnny Carson's and a, a former NBC executive of something. He came out to New York and called the production staff together and had a list of things we absolutely couldn't do. Like what? We couldn't have a band. We couldn't do a monologue. We couldn't make fun of, uh, like, Bob. Uh, the, the example was, for example, if Bob Hope is arrested for selling drugs, that was the example that he gave. You can't make fun of that. <laughs> and, and, and we all just sat there with the image of, really, Bob, Bob Hope, Hope. <laughs> selling drugs. Where would that take right. place? At, at a country club when he's teeing off with Bing Crosby? Right. So there were many prohibitions. And that just reinforced, that kind of brought back to life what we thought we knew what we were doing, you know, because, well, 
okay, we'll find other things to but do. But this was because Johnny basically didn't want the same show replicated right after well, and didn't want to compete for guests. Yeah, that's right. Did, they didn't want to compete for guests. I mean, it was, uh, of course, the thing to do because you don't want two of the same shows back to back. But as a result of this, this is why you didn't have a sidekick. It's why you didn't have that's a, right, that's a right. conventional monologue or orchestra. Mm-hmm. Just that's, I guess, when Paul Schaefer started yeah. as a band leader. You, I mean, you're talking about R&B and, and rock and roll. That was not what you would have heard on those shows that's before. Right. Yeah, you get the big big band music, which was fantastic. Yes. But, yeah, now that I think about it, 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 is, it does seem to, I can kind of coalesce something about the the, the, when you mentioned Paul and, and his band, that was, I, I think, breakthrough for mm-hmm. a certain demographic. I mean, now it's standard equipment, of course. And I was only allowed to do three jokes, which <laughs> which was fine with me because I, I couldn't, you know, I had trouble thinking of <laughs> a joke. And we had all of these kids from Harvard, and Merrill was the producer of the show, mm-hmm. a head writer and producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I... You know, I uh, not much I contributed to this well, other no. than I would, uh, <laughs> you know, show up. But I think that maybe, again, the combination of you two and the fact that you had to do outside-the-box things because mm-hmm. of that, that's why some of these weird segments, not just Stupid Petrix continued, but I think that's where on, on Late Night is where Viewer Mail and oh, yeah. Top Ten List started and, and all and, that. And let, let me mention one other thing yeah. that became foundational, if not fundamental, uh, our director, Hal Gurney. Yes. He became not only the director, but he was a disembodied voice that felt free to interrupt the show anytime he (laughs) wanted, to talk about anything he wanted. And through his directing, visually, he could create jokes that did not exist. Yes. yes. And and I've I've not known anybody like him. I, I loved Hal. He saved us. He was really good, really smart. And, uh, you know, all credit, all credit to Hal sure. and, and everybody else. Well, I guess another thing, though, is if you can't have the typical A-list guests, mm-hmm. you guys were going to go That's and right. get some eccentric guys. I just want to mention a few that if any of them prompt you to, you know, riff on anything. But, I mean, you would have everything from uh, Worm Farmer to the cartoonist uh, Harvey Picard to Andy Kaufman and then of course Crispin Glover we saw what happened there mm-hmm. and Dorman of the Year just stuff that right. would never have been seen on Late Night before. That, yeah that's right We, in fact we uh, we got pretty snotty about who we would have on the show and if it was a beloved uh, film or TV star or musical star we probably would would not be interested in that right. which seems just idiotic now <laughs> but Harvey Picar Wow, that was a tremendous guest. And and I only wish now, well, not now, but when I was working after Harvey Picar, that I had been a little more mature about how you run these things because Harvey was a tremendous guest. He had (laughs) this energy that was just just like a, a, you know, a burning log that (laughs) you didn't want to get too close. And just very... Easily, you could piss him off <laughs> so desperately that it just would take on a completely different flavor and direction in the conversation. And I started taking it personally as opposed to seeing it as a great programming device. Opportunity, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was tremendous. And uh, <laughs> I think we parted on, on bad terms and then tried to reconcile 
And uh, as often happens with a reconciliation, it, it only got worse. <laughs> but uh, looking back on it, I loved it. Yeah. I loved him. He was great. Funny guy. Well, what I think stood out to me is that some of your predecessors in late night were more like cheerleaders. I, I forget who it was that would kind of exaggerate a laugh with his shoulders because, you know, he's got to just, I think there's a sense that the audience is going to follow along. Other people would say, you know, very put your hands together for this, but mm-hmm. very enthusiastically. It seemed like you didn't ever really buy into that and actually thought the whole idea of the this kind of a show was maybe a little <laughs> silly. Was that, or, you know, maybe sometimes, I don't know if you, people thought maybe you weren't even happy to be there doing right. it. Was that posturing or was, was that really the case that you're thinking well, yourself? Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and here's what it is. I think there's a term for it now, (laughs) but uh, when we were growing up, you would look at my mother and in a time when everything was okay, either before my dad got sick or after everything had stabilized, everything was fine, but yet she would look like, and we would often say, mom, are you, are you all right? (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) Why do you keep asking me if I'm, well, you look like you're. And I think I inherited a little bit. some of that resting, what is it called? Resting, <laughs> resting bitch, bitch face. face. Yes. God rest your soul. Right, right, um, right. And, and I think I inherited some of that. And it was only later that I kind of realized, yeah, maybe I ought to be a little happier to be here. <laughs> well, it's, it's <laughs> but a some, people some forget it's I was not happy. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. Just to address one chapter that that is uh, obviously something people would be curious about everyone assumed that, and i imagine that you did as well that for this period when you were filling in for johnny regularly that you would be his successor and in fact i found a quote where one night after uh, after he had a bad monologue and interaction with the first guest he said on the air quote why don't i just go home and we can bring in letterman now close quote yeah. um so did you think there was any chance that would not Happen and what was the first sign of yeah. trouble? Well, first of all, that, I think it's great that Johnny would do that. That that's, <laughs> uh, shows the the confidence and the uh, you know he knew nothing was going to happen. <laughs> but for him to invoke that is pretty funny. Well, one day I get a call from Johnny's manager, mm-hmm. yeah, Henry Bushkin. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, he and Dave Tebbett want to have a meeting with me. So Henry Bushkin and Dave Tebbett and I go over to some hotel n- near the uh, studio. And they sit down and uh, they, they have this plan. They say, Johnny is going to be retiring. We would like you to, to fill in and take over. And the way we want to do this now to keep everybody happy is you'll come in. Maybe you'll do two nights a week. Maybe Johnny will do two nights a week. We'll have a rerun. Maybe Johnny will do three. Maybe you'll do one. And they, they had this, this plan. Dave Tebbett was all excited about it, and Henry Bushkin was all excited about it because I think, obviously, he saw a way to keep a hold of yeah. the, the, the business of The Tonight Show to what to what extent that was going on. And I said, wow, this this sounds great. I, I said, what, what does... Uh, what, is Johnny okay with this? And they said, oh, well, you know, we haven't told Johnny yet. <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, that's great. You know, when you tell Johnny, then we'll, we'll talk again. They never did tell Johnny, and that that was the end of that. So, what do you think? Has you think he would have resisted? I think so. I yeah. I, th- I think people that he trusted and uh, were close to, making plans about his future without mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. I I, th- I think the way to have handled that was Johnny. 
What do you what do you think if me and uh, uh, Dave Tebbett go talk to Letterman about this plan? Then it's okay. And do you think that by you not immediately embracing the idea that made the network think let's look elsewhere? I, I don't think the network had anything to do with it. I, I think it was Bushkin and Tebbett on their own. Okay. And I can remember one one time subsequent to that. Brandon Tartikoff came to see us, and, and uh, we had a chat, and he says, is there anything else I can do for you? And looking back on it, I think the answer then would have been for me to say, well, what, what about The Tonight Show? But I, I had such, um, I, w- I was too timid to put up my hand and say, I'd, you, know, you know that Johnny Carson? I'd like to take his job. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have it in me. Right. So I never brought it up. And in the meantime... Jay was on the show and doing very well. Sort of guest hosting as yeah. well. Yeah, he got to be the guest, the regular guest host, and he got the job. So it was not You're, a surprise, and I don't think anybody did anything wrong, maybe, but me. I, I don't know. Well, so there, you know, just we're not going to harp on this at all, but just the, the perception that there is animosity between you two or was animosity. Uh, I. I just want to get to the root of it because, I mean, if they offer, if they go to him and say, we want mm-hmm. you to do this job, of course he's going to say yes. But right. was it a, the, was there something about the way that, and that would be mishandled on the part of whoever went to him instead of mm-hmm. you. But was there something about the way that he conducted himself in that situation? Well, I will say without specifics, uh, there are, there are way uh, friends behave in situations, uh, competitive situations in life, and there are ways people behave who are not your friends. And that's that's all I sure. can say about this. So as a result of the card shaking out that way, you now end up at CBS at mm-hmm. the beginning of this great run there and renovated theater at Sullivan in Times Square where the Beatles performed, of course. And, and I think out of the gate, you were beating... Jay. Yeah, I think for uh, at least a, a solid year, it was just like bang, zoom, and and then it slipped away and and stayed slipped away. Were ratings important to you, whether you were up or down? Like, did it? Oh, look- yeah, yeah, because, you know, in, in those days, I'm not sure if it's the same significance today in television that ratings were when, when I was in television, but then that was it. You right. know, the, the, at the end of the day, you go to the cash register and see what kind of business you've done. Right. That, that was it. That was it every day. And we were right out of the box. It was great. It was exciting. And then it all slipped away. And then instead of leading, we were chasing. And we weren't sure what to do because when, when you're winning, nobody has an opinion. Right. When, when you're not winning... <laughs> Everybody Everybody wants to talk to you. (laughs) So it it just, uh, it got crazy and it it never, never came back. Is it like an athlete though, where, you know, you, you have your game, then you go and watch tape or something. So in your case, would you watch the show after you shot it to try to dissect things or figure, or would you watch the competitors shows or how would that work for you? Well, I I, I didn't, I never watched Jay because uh, what what I didn't want, and maybe this is just foolish, unfounded uh, pride. I didn't want anything he was doing to subconsciously become a factor in what I was doing. And maybe that's just stupidity. I don't know. 
But I would always watch our show if I if I thought something had gone particularly bad. Yeah. Because I have a pretty low threshold of embarrassment, and I wanted to see, ooh, can I leave the building? Should I wait till it gets dark before I leave the building? So if something had gone crazy stupid, right. I, I would watch that. Yeah. One thing I think that may have been in the early years of The Late Show was, is it true that you were still in touch with Johnny? Yes, spent time with Johnny, and he was, uh, it was pretty cute. He would send in jokes. He would write jokes, and he would send them in, and I would always use them. Whether they were great, mediocre, or no good, I would always use them, because how can you not? And how Uh, would, uh, how would, what would be the signal that it was his joke? I think he called uh, the office and just, you know, uh, here's a joke for Dave. And, and we, we we got into this routine where it it happened But I actually mean, frequently. didn't you do sort of like a golf swing or something to signal that oh, it was maybe, a, maybe I did. I think it was a Maybe Johnny I joke. did, or I may have even said, thank you, Johnny. Yeah. I, I don't know. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I loved it. I thought it was a very cute thing for him to do. Sure. Well, so on this show, I guess by the nature of being at 1130, you had more— A-listers and, you know, your shares and Julia Roberts and people who everybody, so many fun. I went back and watched a lot of the clips prepping for this, but there were still some outside the box uh, characters. And I I just prompt people in case that, you know, to go revisit Madonna or Drew Barrymore, Farrah Fawcett or certainly Joaquin Mm -hmm. Phoenix. Mm -hmm. I know the Bill Hicks episode was one that you put a nice bow on years later, but one guest who you had on more than 30 times between the two shows over the years was one Donald Trump. And one time he was complaining about the way New York was being run. (laughs) And you told him, quote, listening to this stuff, it seems to me you are dying to get some public platform to superimpose those feelings upon the American awareness, close quote. So uh, you were pretty prescient there. Uh, What were your overall impressions of him over the years? Well, first, uh, 30 is the number between the two shows? More than 30. More more than 30. Wow. You're welcome, America. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I mean, there there were uh, two guys, like whenever Regis would come on the show, Regis was a beloved figure and part of New York. Mm -hmm. And Regis was so good at what he did and and so, uh, as we like to say, could really take a punch. Yes. And so we always looked forward to it. And people loved it when he came on. And the same was true with Donald Trump. He could take a punch, and, and I would uh, talk about him evicting elderly widows and being a slumlord and making fun of his hair. <laughs> and he, you know, he just, he, I think he just liked being on TV. Yeah. Had no sense that he was the uh, soulless bastard that he's turned into <laughs> because then he, you could he would laugh at himself yeah. and gave to me yeah. now I I was not a student of his history or his background but to me as a, a talk show guest just seemed like you know fodder right. Br- bring him in let's go let's mow him down right and the harder you hit him the harder he laughed it's weird cuz these days I certainly in in the whole administration i don't think i've seen him laugh once and that's a troublesome sign about any person that's right i mean everybody says oh wouldn't you like to talk to donald trump and i would and i would just like to say don (laughs) it's dave remember me (laughs) i want to talk to the real donald trump right right. because i i don't know i i now don't know which is the real donald trump and and if the donald trump i was talking to is the real Donald, how do you get to be the guy he is now right because 
the other thing is politics notwithstanding, let, let's just say everything is great and he's done a great job, but he still behaves the way he behaves. Mm-hmm. Who behaves like right, that? Right. Who, who says, okay, now you're going to behave like this? You can be the greatest person in the world and behave like that? It's just, I, uh, I don't get it. And, no. and the fact that, you, you know, somebody was, uh, we were having a conversation about something and I wanted to say something about Trump and they said, oh, no, I was talking about Mike Pence. And they said, well, that's not true. And I said, I know, but, you know, all they do is lie. So right, right, it's right. pretty much opened the file on, you know, everybody can lie. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, and I've had this conversation with uh, was Joy Behar, who yeah. knew Joy Behar has been to three of his weddings. <laughs> <laughs> and and she, she says, I don't get it either. It's, right. it's he used to be like the kind of the the boob of New York More that amiable. pretended to be wealthy right. or we thought was wealthy. Right. And now he's just um, he's he's a psychotic. Yes. <laughs> is, well, that, is that putting too fine a point on it? <laughs> Well, as I wind down the the Late Show chapter, I just want to ask you about, you know, you are not somebody who's known for showing great emotion on TV. Some people, are, you know, cry at the at the drop of a hat. In your case, there are three that I think really stand out to people. And I just wonder, just the first thing that comes to your mind when I mention this episode, just uh, even just a sentence. When you were first returning to the air after 9-11, I think it was September 17th, 2001. Well... I didn't want to come back. I was dreading coming back. I I felt like there was nothing I could do to influence, to mollify, to affect. I I felt like I had no business in this because, you know, I I was I I, I was the sideshow to New York City and what had happened was beyond anything anybody yeah. could conceive. So I felt like, what am I going to do? I just I just run this illegal carnival <laughs> that is on the parking lot of a Sears, yeah, it was, it was uh, and I didn't I just didn't want to come back, but I I knew I had to, so I thought and thought and thought about it, and it was one of those things where, you know, you try to write something, uh, you look at it and it doesn't seem right, and then. I, I can remember returning, and as we came into the area, landing, it was like a week, it was less than a week mm-hmm. after the bombing of the towers, you could see two ground-to-sky pillars of smoke yeah. still coming up. And that's when I realized that thing, and I, I think this phrase is in what I said, that that was a palpable indicator to me. It didn't feel like New York right. when I saw that. And and so that's kind of uh, what I tried to express. And oh, uh, and then we, we also weren't sure you could, you know, try to tell jokes or try to say anything funny. Right. And then thank God for Regis because, you know, he was able to transcend this horrific time. Yes. Well, a more personal situation that you had to address, or at least more uh, within the family, so to speak, October 30th, 2002, when Warren Zevon, this musician who you had really championed and who had filled in for Paul and whatever, you knew he was dying. You put him on for the full hour. Yeah. I loved Warren. I loved his music. 
I don't understand why he's not been considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but yeah, I, I loved him, and uh, it was very it was very hard. I I, I mean. You know, when you go to a funeral, you don't have to talk to the corpse. And and here was Warren, who was soon going to be a corpse. And, geez, I just don't know what the etiquette of that is. Mm -hmm. I still don't know what the etiquette of that is. Mm -hmm. And, again, all credit to Warren for—he only had months to live. Yeah. And he came on, and he acted like he wasn't about to die. Right. And it's it's one of the things where I would I would do again. Mm -hmm. I would do a much better job. I felt like I owed Warren a better job than I did that night, but I buckled under the weight of knowing that we were talking about his demise. Sure. And that well, night, I think you're being hard on yourself. People were very moved well, by the whole thing, but you know, I was there. And anyway, yeah. so so that night afterwards, we go up to his dressing room. And uh, we're talking, and I'm thanking him, and he's, he takes off his uh, guitar, and he puts it in, into the case, and he buckles up the case, and he says, here, I want you to take care of this for me. Wow. And it was the guitar that he always used on our show. And uh, that was it. I just uh, burst into tears, and I just said, Warren, I love your music, and that was that. Yeah. The third of these three, just in '09 when... You're a very private person, but you had to talk about a very personal thing and did it in a way that, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, took it head on. Well, again, it's it's one of those. If you have a talk show, I would just say you better be prepared for anything to talk about. And this was hurtful to my family, hurtful to others, hurtful to the show. As it turned out, it spread throughout the whole staff. And again, it was a behavior that I should not have been involved in, thought I knew what I was doing. Uh, it was a mistake, and I, and I had to talk about it. So, yeah. And, and since then, honest to God, I realized that uh, there have been so many mistakes in my life and so much good fortune in my life that I, I really have to concentrate on being a better person because because I've, I've benefited wildly and have been nicked pretty hard, but the benefits far outweigh the nicks. Mm. And how are the nicks doing, by the way? <laughs> Not well enough. <laughs> well, <laughs> so as you sort of wound down at Late Show and were thinking about the next chapter of your life, I wonder, was any of that influenced by the fact that there were new in a way, I don't know if you looked at them as competitors, but new players on the scene who were, who were, let's take The Daily Show, or appropriately enough, I guess, The Colbert Report, where they are dealing with jokes and politics and stuff on a nightly basis. Mm -hmm. Did it affect the, the way that you were now having to go about your job with a monologue or getting, did you have to get more political? Or I thought even maybe perhaps fewer jokes, more stories. Did you find that things were changing because of these new forces out there? Well, I, I don't know if they, uh, they certainly were changing. What I didn't want to do was, and it was too late, I didn't want to be the old guy. Uh, and then Jay announced that he's leaving. And then I looked around and I thought, holy crap, I'm going to be the old guy. <laughs> And CBS and I had an agreement that we decided when it was time to go, it was time to go. And I think the last contract I had was a year. And the guy running CBS at the time, Les Moonves, and I mm. always said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it a step at a time and then we'll talk about it. 
and he and I agreed that at the end of the last contract, it's you know that'll be it. And and I I, I think maybe I, I probably stayed too long. Why honestly. do you say that? Well, there are other things to do, other things that are important, and uh, if if you look at the people that are doing it now, well, it's it's light years beyond. You know, I was old, for God's sake. Nobody wants to see an old guy doing that every night. <laughs> well, were you put off by the, you know, the movement towards creating viral moments since so few people now actually watch things live? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't know how to do that. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we would have meetings. The writers would say, you have to do this, and uh, the researchers and the sales department. And I say, I don't know how you do that. Let's, I've said, I'm all for it. Let's do that. How do you do that? You mean you didn't want to sing and dance on the, on the I, show? <laughs> I, sure, I'll sing and yeah. dance, but I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And, and I think it is just the thing, you know, uh, you kids and your damn rock and roll, turn that. I think, it, you know, I'd gotten to be the old guy, and I just, it wasn't going to sink in. So after 30-plus years of waking up every day to, you know, make yourself presentable, come up with jokes, go out and do this, <laughs> to suddenly not have to do that, I can't imagine, even if you were thrilled with everything else that you were now doing in your life, to go from 150 miles per hour mm -hmm. to three right. overnight, What's that like? You know, it's like you're thrown out of a speeding truck. And, yeah, I, I, I did in a way, it was a relief because you didn't have the pressure of a daily show. On the other hand, you didn't have the pressure of a daily show. Right. And when you're doing a daily show for so long as I did, I, I didn't have to wear a watch. I didn't have to look at a clock. <laughs> I, it just becomes, I think dogs have this sense. They know... If we get fed at 6, we automatically know it's 6. And that's the way I was. Right. I knew when it was time to eat lunch. I knew right. when it was time to take a shower. I knew when it was time to get dressed. I knew when it was time to go to makeup. I knew it was right. time to have the meeting. And it just happened every day automatically, which was great. And then suddenly you don't have that. Honest to God, the other day I was in location A. Mm -hmm. My son was in location B. Right. I knew the phone number of location B, and I had a phone at location A. And I tried six times to dial the phone right. to get to my son, and it was impossible. <laughs> impossible. And had I been younger and different, the phone would have been yanked out of the so wall done it, and yeah. tossed across the room. And I, I just thought, Dave, you're pathetic. You can't even dial a damn phone. Well, one thing you don't have to do anymore, and I believe you're taking advantage of this, is you don't have to shave. Don't have to shave, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank God for that. Right. Because and, and uh, I'm afraid to see what might be under there now. <laughs> I think well, I'm doing the world a favor. Do you miss that grind at all, though? I would assume that... In the, in the beginning, yes. But it, but my thing is, I would assume that my next guest needs no introduction is some manifestation of a desire to at least keep a foot in it. Oh, it's great. Because if you look at the, the run, uh, we did 6,000 shows. I've now done two seasons, yes. as they're called. Yes. And we've done 12. <laughs> yeah. But they're great. And you know, the thing, though, was... 12. Well, but each one amazing. And, and we should say for, for season one, if anyone hasn't already gone back, you can go on Netflix and see President Obama's first interview after leaving office. George Clooney, Malala, Jay-Z, Tina Fey, Howard Stern, plus one that I was lucky enough to see you do about a year ago with Seinfeld. And then I saw you do another one just a week ago with Galifianakis, uh, which was Zach. fun. Yeah. Oh, my God, what a tremendous kid this guy is. That was hilarious. He, uh, uh, you know, I called him afterward, 
And I said, uh, yes, uh, this is uh, Dave, Dave Letterman. <laughs> and he said, hello. And I said, yes, this is Dave Letterman. And I said, who am I speaking to? And he said, this is Teresa. <laughs> I said, oh, hi, Teresa. <laughs> he's just, he's just nothing off but the wall. Fun. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think sometimes during the, the late show and, and late night years, maybe people gave you a hard time about interviews or whatever. They'd say you felt like it was winging it or whatever. Yeah. And yet here we are where these are master classes in interviewing where you have an hour with somebody to really get them to, you know, draw out from them. I think that also people missed it maybe during the, uh, maybe, maybe you, I wonder if you yearn to do more of this during those prior shows, because there was one that I, when I went back to prep for this, I, I watched the one where you and Oprah ended your mm-hmm. quote unquote feud. Yeah. And she, <laughs> even she was very blown away at that visit by, you chose to take that episode and really go in depth, multi-segments, her whole life story and mm. it's almost like a pilot for what we now get to see you do and yeah maybe so what's the you know long form interviews it turns out that's something you love well i i, I have enjoyed this by the way i just want to correct myself he said this is sheila sheila it wasn't melissa it was sheila <laughs> teresa teresa yeah. Yeah. yeah you know it's it's i don't know whenever we would do the show there wasn't a night when we would have to edit it because i would have run the thing five minutes over, 10 minutes over, 20 minutes over. And it was always because of talking to somebody. And I I got very selfish about this and careless. And it was inconsiderate because people had to stay after work and edit the dang show. (laughs) But I I, kind of thought to myself, well, I'm I'm talking here to uh, Barack Obama. I'm talking here to Bill Clinton. I'm I'm talking here to Mayor Bloomberg Mm -hmm. or whomever. I'm not going to get to talk to him again. The same way you're not going to get to talk yes. to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so it, for me, it's been great because we can we can talk to these people, and it, it, they're so interesting. Superficially, they're interestingly, and and then beneath that, the the facets that create the outer layer of the human being, right. that's where you get lost. That's oh, where you you know you you get your uh, work in. And they're all, you know, the great thing is they're all smarter than I am. And and being around smarter people, they always say you're only going to get better playing tennis if you play people who are better tennis players. Oh. You know, it's 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 been great fun for me, and uh, the people we've worked with have been tremendous. With the last 30 seconds, if I can just ask you the first thing that comes to your mind, who's the guest that got away, the one you most wish you'd had a chance to interview on any of the shows? My cousin Jeff. Do you ever wish... You'd stuck around longer so that you could be, in terms of the late night, going after Trump in these days. No, because it's, you know, it's, I wish I could, like you and I are talking, I wish, and I don't even care if it was recorded, I would just like to talk to the guy. Because, uh, as I said before, he knows me, I know him, what the hell went wrong? Right, right. Who, in your view, is the greatest late night talk show host of all time? Well, that would be Mr. Carson. How about of the people that are currently on the air doing it? Well, let's see. Let's run them down. You you, you name the person and I'll evaluate right. them. Colbert. He's fantastic. He has taken that show and harnessed the uh, energy, the political energy of the country and uh, done a great job. Fallon. Jimmy is doing something else, but doing a great job at it. Kimmel. Kimmel is uh, Mr. Everyman. I'm very fond of Jimmy. Been on his show a couple of times. I like him. He's he's genuine, and he 
knows when and what to make a point of things that are not right in this country. And I think he is aptly celebrated for that. And I respect that. Gordon. I, I don't know anything about him. I, as the people used to say to me, I can't stay up that late. <laughs> I, I see him singing and dancing and stuff. And so God bless him. And that applies to the person in your old seat at uh, late night, Seth Myers. Well, Seth Meyer's also a smart kid, and I've been on his show, and he does a very nice job. I think I think he's uh, I think he's right where you want to be. These are troubled times, right. and I think he is navigating them nicely intellectually. Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah, I mean, he uh, is replacing or did replace uh, John Stewart, and who thought that could happen? Does a great job, and also he wrote a, a book that became a textbook. Uh, you, you may have noticed I haven't done that. What about Samantha B? Samantha B. she's one of those people that not only has a television show, but through the television show and how she conducts herself has become an activist, and you have to admire that. How about Conan? How can you not like Conan O'Brien, the longest-running current late-night host and a very smart, very funny guy? I love Conan. Last one. What makes you laugh the hardest these days? My son. Yeah. Yeah, without question. Can't thank you enough. Hey, it's really been, appreciate been fun. It. Thanks, yeah. Dave. Is it still uh, Thursday? <laughs> <laughs> Is it? As far as I know. Is the sun coming up or going down? I don't know. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.